Most of us can rely on a stable, high-speed internet connection, and because of it, we can connect with friends, family, and colleagues with ease, sign up for courses and programs in an instant, and even fact-check our outspoken cousin's Facebook posts in mere minutes. But this isn't the case for many people living in remote and Indigenous communities across Canada. Our modern digital world has meant a lot of change in the way we do things. And for the education system, it's made a big impact. With more access to educational content than ever and the ability to do distanced learning. For Indigenous students in remote communities, a digital learning space has felt pretty out of reach. Historically, getting a well-rounded education has been a challenge and that's meant high dropout rates and students that are just not engaged in the content that they're learning about. Well, there's a program called Connected North that's aiming to change all of that. Connected North is a program managed by Taking It Global. It uses two-way telepresence video technology to connect remote Indigenous students to distanced interactive learning. What does that mean? Well, students and teachers are able to connect with other students across the country, with experts, artists, and world leaders. They're doing remote field trips and being guided around baseball stadiums, even landmarks around the world. And they're connecting with other Indigenous communities, learning about and from each other. Michael Furtick couldn't be more thrilled to see the success of Connected North. He's the Director of Innovation at Taking It Global. And he joins me on the podcast to unpack what this technology means for the future of distance learning, for Indigenous students, their communities, and reconciliation. So only 24% of households in Indigenous communities have access to modern high-speed internet. Connected North is using two-way telepresence video, so it's much more complex than just connecting to a remote video call to start their school day. Can you explain this tech and how it's working around the problem and getting that connection to communities that don't have it? Sure. Yeah. When the Connected North program was started, it was a kind of inspiration that um, Willa Black from Cisco had. The real gap was the fact that with such limited bandwidth, there's obviously challenges in terms of what's possible over video. So the majority of the communities that our program serves are satellite based communities. You know, they don't have fiber or, you know, DSL or other types of internet. And as anyone who's worked with satellite-based internet knows, it's, you know, the, the amount of bandwidth you have until very recently was extremely precious. And so the, the telepresence technology allows us to have, you know, reliable video calls that are scheduled and set up, but also to be very precise about making the most of the bandwidth that's available using codecs to compress the video and audio. So our priority is really that educational experience for students and ensuring that they can can benefit from the bandwidth that's available. So what are the logistics here? What kind of roadblocks are keeping schools and students from getting there? Well, I think until very recently, it was the fact that in many of these communities, they're not high populations. So I think what we've seen recently is kind of two things. One, just a realization of bandwidth and internet access as a human right, really. But we've also seen, you know, a number of satellite technology companies uh, improving the technology. You know, the technology has been getting better, faster, cheaper. Uh, and I think in the next year or two, we'll hopefully see this, this challenge largely disappear, although there'll still be some funding challenges in terms of making sure that access is universal. So at a high level, like when we think of the technology support for the remote schools, what do they need to do to make this a reality from their perspective? 
Well, there's really two pieces to it. One is obviously having access to the connectivity that's necessary to have a rich video interactive experience. And, and as I mentioned, that's getting a little bit better. And the other side of it, though, is making sure the experience is kind of seamless and supported for the teacher. As you can imagine, in many small communities, they might not have a dedicated you know, tech support person uh, that's available on call for teachers. So the telepresence technology from Cisco and the WebEx uh, room system that's provided or donated to them as part of the program means it's as easy as just pushing a button for a teacher to join a video conference. So first of all, making that experience super easy. They don't have to worry about you know, audio configuration or you know, software updates and things like that. That all happens automatically. The other part of it is, you know, what happens when something goes wrong? Maybe the unit was unplugged. Maybe there was a power surge. Maybe there was a network change. And so SoftChoice is providing the program with a, a staffed help desk so that if teachers or our team members are having an issue with making sure a session happens for students, they can call a number and have someone, you know, that has access and, and monitoring everything behind the scenes to provide them with support. So that's really, we know, essential because teachers are counting on us every day to make these learning experiences kind of come to life. And there's a lot of small things that can still go wrong when you have a complex solution with many different parts. And even when you have, you know, unpredictable weather or, you know, network issues. So let's go back to the beginning. Here's what I understand was the catalyst in getting connected north off the ground and feel free to fill in any pieces that I might be missing. Um, you mentioned Willa Black, vice president at uh, CSR and Cisco was inspired by the Canadian governor general, Mary Simon, who'd been talking about the challenges faced in indigenous communities like the lack of mental health services, lack of health care, and ultimately high dropout rates at school. This sparked a pilot version of Connected North in a Callowit. And you saw a lot of great feedback about kids being more engaged that started the expansion to five more schools and ultimately to where we are today with 109 schools. So there may not be a lot of mainstream understanding about what the stakes really are here. So can you paint a picture of what this kind of technology means for these remote communities? Yeah, no, exactly. I think that, um, and, and just to clarify, the pilot with Axarnie Middle School and that initial expansion to five schools was something that Cisco did uh, within their organization. And then I think they saw the demand, the opportunity, and they were looking for a charity that could take over the program and help it grow. So that's where Taking It Global comes in. Uh, and we've been doing this work now for, for 21 years as an organization. We started in 1999 with a focus on the intersection of education, technology, and kind of social innovation amongst young people. So for us, this was a really special opportunity to, to take a program that had been kind of proven through initial research and then help to, to shape it and grow it uh, over the last seven years now. So back to your question, I think, you know, when you talk about what this technology and connectivity means for many of these remote communities, uh, I'm sure increasingly many of our listeners are aware of the history of residential schools that happened until, you know, the 1990s. You know, it's, I was alive when the last residential school was still operating. So I think, you know, one part of the focus of the program is really trying to respond to what communities see as the priorities for education moving forward. And so as much as the program is about, you know, virtual field trips and, and connecting students to, you know, experts in the South, it's also about cultural exchanges. It's about connecting Northern communities together. I think it's really about responding to the, the desire for communities to take back control of their educational experience and really to ensure that students have access and are inspired by 
representation, you know, Indigenous role models, First Nations, Métis, Inuit role models that they can connect to from all over Turtle Island, you know, all over North America um, and between their communities. You know, when we talk about this concept sometimes in technology of leapfrogging, you know, thinking of my son who's in uh, grade three here in the TDSB in Toronto, he only had one field trip last year, even though we were virtual learning, you know, they could have done a lot of virtual field trips, but the reality is it's a lot of work to organize and it's, it's kind of complicated sometimes to coordinate. And so the fact that we're able to provide these students with, you know, a field trip every week, connection to role models and inspiration for their future pathways, I think it's, it's just a small beginning of a journey towards reconciliation when we talk about uh, how education was an, the experience that, that their parents might have had in education in the past and how we can make the education system more responsive to their needs, to their priorities, and really including content that's representative of their, their cultures and traditions and histories and centering those role models. You know, we had over 80 First Nations, Inuit, Métis role models last year. That's really our focus is helping these remote communities connect and in some cases reconnect to that, that part of their history. That's beautiful. I, I love how you talk about, you know, it gives them control of their, their educational experience and, and in, in such a responsible and respectful way. It's, uh, it's quite uh, amazing. So how is the program contributing to classrooms? I've heard you say there's three key changes. So can you maybe expand a little bit on that and maybe even share a bit of a story about a student or a teacher that there's been a significant impact with? Sure. Yeah. Just at the end of last school year, we did a uh, educator survey. We did find, you know, three key themes that teachers talked about um, sparking interest. So exposing students to a variety of career pathways and subjects and content that they might not have had access to because there might not have been that that local expert. Building confidence. And I think a lot of that comes from representation, you know, seeing role models, seeing experts, seeing Indigenous people in, in many different fields speak to them about their experience, making them feel like anything is possible. And providing memorable experiences. There's a lot of different premium sessions we talk about, a lot of kind of special guests that uh, we know we'll, they'll remember for a very long time. And we had an opportunity to surprise one of our schools, a music uh, class, uh, with a visit from Chris Martin from Coldplay. And so we actually, there was a student in this class that got to actually perform a song for him. Uh, and the second one that, that's a, a kind of a more complicated one is there was a particular student in a community in Nunavut who was very interested in Shakespeare and his plays and, and his writing. And the teacher asked us, you know, is there some way that you could do some sort of connection to respond to the student's interest? And so one of our team members actually reached out to the Globe Theatre in London, England, to see if there might be some possibility of an expert who could speak or something that could happen. And even though they hadn't done kind of virtual tours or virtual field trips before, they agreed to try it out. And we were able to get kind of a full tour of Shakespeare's theatre for that class and for that student uh, and an actor that kind of pretended, you know, he was back in that time, you know, giving this amazing video walkthrough. And we did several more sessions with them as a follow-up. So it's all live, it's interactive, and it's typically one-to-one, you know, one one expert to one class directly. I, I got goosebumps when you shared those two. When I think about the the look on the child's face when Coldplay and uh, Chris Martin show up on the screen and, and just, I saw a snip of the tour of the Globe Theater and it was just, it was magnificent, actually. It was just, it was breathtaking. And I can only imagine that through the eyes of a child would just be incredible. So Connected North is actively collaborating with Indigenous communities and bringing Indigenous expertise to the table. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of insights you're receiving that might change the way we think about education, or maybe even how you originally anticipated using this type of technology? So we have Connected North, which at its core is delivering these interactive experiences. 
Uh, and we also have a few different kind of complementary projects that offer, we talk about like wraparound supports. And one of the ones that I've been quite excited to see develop is called Create to Learn, which was developed in partnership with Imaginative, where we've contracted over 60 First Nations, Métis, Inuit creatives to provide students with tutorials on all kinds of different uh, interactive media technologies, whether that's you know flying a drone, editing a video, writing a song. And we've just published a textbook and, and just this week, a teacher's guide to help teachers integrate these ideas into the curriculum. Uh, we have a platform called www.whos.land, uh, which helps um, anyone learn more about Indigenous communities, treaties, traditional territories, and a lot of the content that young people create through our various programs is featured there. Uh, and, and I think as we increasingly make efforts to support reconciliation, one of the goals is to support more meaningful connections to the land. Um, today, here in Toronto, I'm speaking to you from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. I think that you know when students in school, for example, hear and, and experience these land acknowledgements every day, there's demand and interest to connect them to more meaningful content uh, and learning experiences. And we want to support the students through the Connected North Network in creating that content so that everyone can learn and they can be producers, you know, creators, not just consumers. So ensuring that students can participate in this digital economy, have the skills and develop them as early as possible. Challenging students to not just think of themselves as consumers, but as creators and through create to learn hopefully we've provided lots of content that allows them to do that. And with Whose Land, we now have a platform where anyone can go and experience those stories. This conversation drives home a particular point in my mind. Connected North is made possible because of satellite technology. High-speed internet still isn't reliable to these remote communities. And that just feels impossible given the fact that most of us have an entire plane of existence in the digital world. So at this point, shouldn't the internet be a human right? I put out a call to some colleagues at SoftChoice to weigh in. Internet access is now vital for access to jobs, to education, ensuring freedom of expression and access to information. I believe the internet is a mechanism. It's a mechanism for people to freely access information and also freely express their opinion. As technology evolves and progresses, many publications, essential services, like booking appointments, access to basic healthcare information, they're only available through online platforms. No one should be put in a position where they or their family are at a critical disadvantage due to lacking access to basic care or information. You know, some of my favorite memories in school were going to see live musicals, but what I realize is, you know, a very small percentage of the population are able to do things like that. So what I get excited about when I think about these virtual field trips is really bringing those types of experience to a much broader subset of students. I grew up in a very small town and field trips were what opened my eyes as a child to the world outside of my bubble. Museums made history real, farms gave me more of an appreciation for our natural resources, and road trips to other cities made me feel connected to a larger community. I definitely want those experiences for my children and I would hope that with the use of technology they can see even more of the world than I did. If children of the future can take virtual field trips, not just to neighboring cities, but to different countries, I have a real hope that future generations will continue to evolve closer together. So Michael, with this program, how do you measure success from your perspective? How does Connected North approach this from a successful version? 
One challenge is there's a lot of student data we don't have access to. And so we, we kind of look at a few things. One is how satisfied are educators with the experience that we're providing? You know, at the end of every session, they get an automatic email that allows them to rate and provide feedback and share, you know, insights on that experience to help us continuously improve. Um, but I think, you know, a broader sense of success that we're working towards long term is, you know, how are we building the capacity of the, the network of content providers and role models to be able to deliver this kind of programming beyond our scope? Because even though we've doubled, you know, we went from 54 schools to 109, I think there's there's many hundreds, if not several thousand schools across the country that could benefit that are serving Indigenous students. And I think that it's important to ensure we have a more vibrant ecosystem of content delivery beyond our responsibility, but really, you know, that capacity in institutions and that we have lots of role models. You know, we've been working with over 80 First Nations, Métis, Inuit role models this year. Lots of role models available and that are being hired, are being paid, you know, are accessing opportunities to be those experts. I think the long-term goal, though, is supporting students in graduating so that they can come back and they can be the teachers in their communities. I know for many communities have made progress on that. Many communities now have local teachers, you know, students who've grown up and come back to their communities. And I know that almost every community, that would be their aspiration. Uh, and in the meantime, when there are teachers from elsewhere coming to communities, we hope that through Connected North, we can make their experience a little bit easier and, and be a, a support and a partner for them and also support them with that learning experience by connecting to their, their peers across the North who may have also been teaching for a longer period of time. So while we do see you know, direct success measurement around how satisfied are teachers with the experiences that we're bringing in their classroom, I think the bigger picture is you know, how do we shift the educational experience for Indigenous students and communities to be centered around their priorities. And I know a big part of that is really seeing representation and content. So if I'm a teacher in the Connected North program, is there sort of like a community or a database that I go into as I'm looking to build out to get examples and of different speakers and different guests that I could bring in or different ideas for field trips? Yeah, exactly. Until this year, uh, we've had a paper menu that we printed and shipped to every teacher, and we're still doing that this year. But over the last year, we've been working on developing a new um, mobile app uh, and web platform that teachers can use, and they can search by many different criteria. So they can search by, you know, a cultural group, they can search by a particular subject, they can search by location, uh, and they can find interactively and, and then request bookings for these different uh, educators and providers that we have in our system. So we're just about to launch that to teachers in the coming week. Oh, I bet they're excited about that. That's great. What are the reactions and demands looking like from schools to get set up with this type of technology? How widespread could this distanced learning get? Because I'm thinking that once word's out and you hear of another community that's got it, you're like, okay, how do we get this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, last year, we definitely didn't plan for the kind of 100% growth. We went from 54 schools to 109. Um, I think as much as possible, you know, I don't necessarily see that trajectory continuing as a program. I think we are showing a model of what's possible. And we're also very open about the, the, the research that we share, the lessons learned, the community that we've built. I think one of our goals has been to help our providers, our content providers, our partner educators, really open up their opportunities so that they can do this work more broadly. Um, and so through Connected North, and in many cases, in many of these partnerships, we were able to help access donated equipment for many of those institutions, like the Vancouver Aquarium or the Winnipeg Art Gallery uh, and many other partners. Uh, and in the future, we know that those institutions are already delivering more virtual learning, um, hopefully partially as a result of their experience with Connected North. So this will be 
um, more accessible. And obviously with COVID and with school closures, all of a sudden the demand shifted. And now this is a reality of, I think, many institutions programming and probably will be well into the future and hopefully be sustainable. Uh, so I, I guess my challenge would be more to, to funders, to governments, to make sure that as you're thinking about you know funding for these types of, you know, our leading educators and institutions and even individual artists that we think about the value of investing in their capacity to deliver digital education not just physical spaces you know there's a famous like cultural spaces fund but it doesn't fund virtual spaces it doesn't support that so i think it's really going to be essential uh, especially with growing demand for virtual learning both from parents who might be now attracted to the increased flexibility but also to prepare for future pandemics you know i'm sure covid won't be the last situation like this that we find ourselves in. And we need to make sure that we can continue learning for students in ways that are meaningful and relevant. And as the gap closes in many remote communities with bandwidth, I'm sure there'll be even more hunger and opportunity for these kind of partnerships. That's awesome. When you think about the art of the possible, um, you see how far this program's come in the time that you've been involved with it. What do you think it means for the future for Indigenous communities and education? Like, what is that art of the possible? I really hope that it supports the the demand and the the kind of stated interest that we've we've heard and we try to be a partner in in terms of self determination of you know access of really control over education of ensuring that there are, you know indigenous voices at the center of that experience learning experience for students I think that hopefully as this tech as access to technology and bandwidth spreads and we you know remedy the gaps that uh, that are, are there right now over the next couple of years I think that it hopefully means um, a richer more relevant, you know, more vibrant learning experience for students, both in school institutions, but also at home, so that they can access the skills they need to, you know, create opportunities for themselves um, that that represent their priorities for for growth in the future and for kind of the self-determination of education. Well, I know we at Soft Choice are thrilled to be partnering with you and Connected North and Cisco. So uh, an exciting partnership in our, in our way of participating in this. It's, uh, it's exciting. So thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. And thank you for, on behalf of those you know, 500 plus teachers who use the program on a, on a weekly basis, knowing that they have someone to call and support they can receive if there's ever any issues is a, a monumental improvement in our customer service as a program, something we've always dreamed of. So excited about the partnership and the school year to come. I love this story for so many reasons. It's the ultimate example of technology for good. And I think that's what sticks with me the most. The idea that companies can work together and use their expertise to really make a difference. And it's only the beginning. More than ever, senior leaders across the tech industry have a role to play in advancing and changing our world. And to me, there isn't anything more inspiring than that. The opportunity is there. All you have to do is look for it, listen, and take action. Thanks for checking out this episode of The Catalyst. If you liked what you heard, make sure you hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star rating, and do us a favor by sharing this episode with a friend or colleague. The Catalyst by SoftChoice is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SoftChoice. Our producers are Tobin Dalrymple and Katie Lohr. Our associate producer is Jessica Schmidt with production assistance from Nicole Francis. I'm Erica Van Noort. Talk to you again in two weeks. Music